Hello and welcome to Fifth in Mission. I'm Dominic Fracasa, a staff writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. For parents of school-aged children across the Bay Area, the panic is already setting in. Come August, classrooms will not be open and instruction will be all virtual as the region strains to get a handle on the surging COVID-19 pandemic. Faced with the prospect of having to again stick their kids in front of screens for distance learning, which is already proving to be disastrous for some students, some parents of means are desperate for an alternative and they're getting creative. Here to talk about the pandemic pod phenomenon and its potential pitfalls is Chronicle staff writer Jill Tucker. Hi, Jill. Hey, how's it going? I'm all right. So let's just start at the beginning here. So what are pandemic pods and what exactly is pushing parents to create them? Yeah, so I started hearing about pandemic pods, gosh, probably about a week ago, week and a half ago. And um, essentially, it it sort of came out of um, San Francisco, really, a couple parents started this Facebook site. And and uh, after Governor Newsom basically put an order out saying that schools cannot open if counties are on the watch list, which basically applies to almost all counties in California and most of the six million students here. And so these parents realized they their kids were going to be in distance learning almost for sure when school starts next month. And it was not a great situation, as you said, for a lot of families in the spring. It was really tough. Uh, parents work and trying to help their kindergartner or first grader learn to read um, at home in front of a screen was difficult. Um, a lot of high school kids just simply checked out and middle school kids. And so everybody's sort of looking at a brand new school year with a repeat of all of that. Um, you know, they panicked. They 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 freaked out, really. And they started figuring out, well, what if we get together and form these small groups that would be relatively safe um, with masks and maybe distance learning or doing it outside or or creating kind of these small quarantine groups where they could hire teachers or they could hire caregivers to work with the kids um, academically, give them a chance to be around each other socially um, and have more of a school-like experience, but one that's created by the parents in, in a home environment. And so they started calling them pandemic pods and the idea just exploded. And it is across the country, uh, people are trying to find people in their communities, at their schools, where they could team up. Um, you know, and, and and the reality is it's it's for, for in many situations, depending on how they're doing it, they're talking about spending up to two thousand dollars a month um, to to basically uh, replace the formal school environment and create their own little uh, private pandemic pod school. Um, and you know, others are teachers are, are that don't want to go back to classrooms are starting to take jobs doing these pods and, and charging 20, 25 or more an hour per child, uh, to do this. Um, so it really is a movement that is trying to ease the uncertainty of, uh, a, another round of distance learning. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really caught on. Is this then really the kind of exclusive province of, you know, parents and kids in private school, just given the way the dynamics are between a private school environment versus what, you know, if you're a, a public school student, just kind of whatever the district foists on you, like whatever the program is going to be? 
No, you know, so really this is something that public and private school families are looking at either to replace distance learning in their school or to supplement it. Um, in some cases, the pods are more of a childcare sharing environment, kind of like a co-op. So there's really many incarnations of what these pandemic pods are. There's really no two that are exactly alike. Um, and and yet it really is all families. But I will say, you know, it's kind of people with, with some measure of privilege, right? Because you have to be able to either have the space or the money or the, um, you know, job situation or other things to participate in these pods. And, and the fear really is that a lot of children, especially those that are already at the low end of the achievement gap, are going to be left further behind as these more privileged families are getting the support they need for their kids. I know that the the phenomenon of pandemic pods, you know, as you've reported, it's it's still fairly new. I mean, we haven't, despite how it feels, been inside this pandemic for all that long. But do you get a sense at all for just how many kids might be getting their their school instruction in, in one of these pod environments when school starts in August? You know, we don't know yet, and and we'll be able to see maybe in the coming month, month or so, when when people start registering private schools, or or we start getting a little bit of a better idea. But right now, I can tell you, so two two Bay Area parents started um, a pandemic pod Facebook group. Um, I believe less than two weeks ago, maybe about ten days ago, and that uh, Facebook group now has sixteen thousand members. Um, and you have to ask to be part of it. You can't just, you know, just log on once. Like you actually have to become a member. So there's 16,000 members across the country just in that one group. And then a whole bunch of pandemic pod groups for cities or regions have, have separated from that. So untold thousands of people have been looking into this and participating in the discussions about this. So it's kind of unclear now, but you know, it, it really seems like, um, a lot. <laughs> How's that answer? <laughs> <laughs> no, no doubt. I mean, we certainly, I mean, that's a staggering number. I mean, if nothing else, that really tells us the state of parents' interests, right? I mean, Definitely, that doesn't yeah. mean that the pods will form, but people are people are definitely looking at this as a possible alternative if they can swing it. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, they're scrambling for options. I mean, people are trying to figure out what can they do. I mean, and and it's it's what parents do, right? You you want to look out for your child and what's best for your child. So it's completely understandable that people are desperate to find answers in this really really difficult time. How long do you think distance learning could be the norm this school year? I know that's kind of like the, you know, what is it, the $60,000 question? I mean, that's, uh, I know it's really hard to look into the crystal ball for that answer. But I mean, as far as we know right now, what are Bay Area schools looking at for how long, you know, the the virtual learning could be, could be the norm this school year? So, I think there's going to be a lot of parents that don't want to hear this answer, so they should maybe put their fingers in their ears and say, "You can la, la, fast la. forward <laughs> but, this part." Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I I actually think um, that it's a good bet that distance learning, at least in some form 
or in, 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 at some times during the school year will be part of our lives for the foreseeable future and for perhaps the entire academic year. That doesn't mean that kids will be in distance learning the whole year, although I think that's a possibility in some cases. Um, but I do think that they might bounce back and forth between distance learning and in-school instruction. And in many cases, even when kids go back to school, they're only going to go part-time and the other time will be distance learning. So, um, you know, we really have to look at distance learning as an integral part of education, um, probably for the next academic year. I, I, I hope not beyond that, um, but, uh, but we'll see. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back to talk more with Chronicle staff writer Jill Tucker. Stay tuned. Okay, so Jill, let's zoom out of this picture just a little bit more just for a moment. What generally, you mentioned before the watch list, this the county watch list and how that's affecting school reopenings. Give us kind of the state of the state, if you will, when it comes to where schools are around reopening at this point. What sort of metrics are they using to kind of guide their plans? Right, so so Governor Newsom, Newsom really, um, you know, came down with a hammer uh, and said that schools cannot reopen if they are on the state monitoring list. And and that's basically related to case counts, hospitalizations and other criteria. And and all Bay Area counties are on that list. Um, and, and I think more than 30 counties across the state out of 58. So we're really talking about um, you know, most of the most of the counties and the vast majority of school children currently fall under that. Um, the the counties have to be off that monitoring list for two weeks before schools can reopen. So, uh, you know, that that's quite a bit of time for case counts and hospitalizations and everything to be to go down. And and the reality is um, case counts are still going up. Right. And um, San Mateo County just got added to the list recently. So so everything's kind of going in the wrong direction right now. So uh, with schools starting the second week of August, in some cases, you know, there, there's just no possibility. There's there isn't enough time to get off the list in order for schools to reopen. So, um, you know, they're, they're really taking a look at that. And, and school districts are planning to uh, for full distance learning when they open. But but basically all all districts are also planning for what comes next. How do they reopen when it's safe to do so when they get off that list? Um, you know, how may, do they create a hybrid model? How do they, uh, you know, um, you know, keep desks that far apart or how do they get all the supplies in? Meanwhile, they're negotiating with teachers unions to have um, an agreement on working conditions during distance learning as well as when they come back to school, which is is really tough in some places to come to that agreement. So there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's still a lot to do uh, before schools can reopen, even after districts or, or counties get off that, that watch list. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be tough for schools to reopen. I think it'll be Families will want schools to reopen as soon as they get off that monitoring list for 14 days. I don't think that's going to happen. It's not going to be as seamless as that. Um, but everybody, that has to be the first step. They have to get off the, the watch list. In, in reading your story, Jill, 
it it seems like a lot of this this desire for an alternative to distance learning or or a supplement or a complement to it has to do with some of the shortcomings of distance learning itself. Can you talk a little bit a little bit about what sort of problems parents are experiencing when it comes to to learning over over a laptop as it were? Why is that not working for some kids? Well, uh, so many reasons. <laughs> like, where should I start? Goodness. Um, well, let's start with the fact that not all kids had the technology or the Wi-Fi to do it. So that was one of the biggest problems in the spring that so many thousands and thousands of kids just did not have the ability to participate from home using a computer, using doing virtual or Zoom or other types of things. Um, and then the next part was that teachers just weren't prepared to do this. I mean, let's remember like schools closed and there were hours, you know, people got, people got noticed hours before that happened. So teachers basically and families had to jump into a completely new form of education with no warning. You know, teachers weren't trained to do this. They had to learn the technology. I mean, like many of us, you know, they'd never heard of Zoom before. They weren't using Google Classroom. So they had to catch up on the technology. And it it just wasn't something that many teachers were were comfortable with, um, were good at, uh, had had the ability to do from home. Um, so you just saw, you know, kind of a wide range of quality issues with distance learning. Some teachers were fabulous at it, let, let's be clear. But I think for many, it was very difficult. Then you add on top of that, that high school kids, and, and in many cases, middle school kids were sort of like, oh, well, like this doesn't count, right? Because the schools weren't necessarily holding them accountable. So a lot of kids just simply didn't show up. They just, nobody ever heard from them again after schools closed. And then when you look on the the younger end, the little ones just have a really hard time. They're pretty squirmy. And, um, <laughs> you know, trying to get a kindergartner to, you know, do stuff on Zoom um, when parents are trying to homeschool, parents are trying to get them to do it and having a hard time. So really, you know, there were so many different problems depending on the age, depending on the, the school district, depending on the teachers, depending on the families. Um, it, it was just something of a train wreck in many places. And um, I know districts and, and families are hoping for a better situation in the fall now that we've had some experience under our belt doing this. But the fear is that they haven't seen any plans. They don't know what the schedules are. They're still districts are still trying to figure that out. So with so much uncertainty, it's just that everyone fears sort of a repeat of the spring. Well, thank you for bumming me out with that uh, I know. Uh, recent history lesson. <laughs> uh, that's just that's just the way the news is though, right now. I'm sorry. So that's <laughs> I walked right into it, frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, every every parent let's just let's take as a given that that every parent wants to do what's best for their own kids' education, right? But but these pods, as you sort of hinted at before, they're they're raising some real fundamental educational equity issues here. You know, yeah. the parents who can afford them can can set them up and and pay those hourly rates or or or, or sort of make them happen because of because of the means and and the the funds they have access to. But can can you walk us through that a little bit? What are some of these these concerns around educational equity and the real concern about, you know, some kids getting getting left behind this school year more than they already have been? Yeah, I mean, so when you think about having these pods, it's about giving kids more support and stability and social interaction and academic support while they're on Zoom. And if you can't participate in that type of thing, 
and your parents are working, for example, or you, you know, you don't have anybody to fix your computer when you can't log on, um, you know, it's going to leave those kids further behind. And often those are already the kids, the low income kids, children of color, um, foster children, uh, special education children, and the list kind of goes on that, that are already left behind. And so the fear is that the haves get more and the have nots fall further behind. Um, you know, so, so that's been, there's been a lot of criticism about the pods that it, that it, you know, that that means that, you know, and a lot of guilt, frankly, among the parents that are participating in it, meaning, you know, maybe they shouldn't do it because not all kids can do it. But it's interesting because in the reporting of my story, I found a lot of folks um, working in, you know, um, high risk or high need communities, um, and as well as public officials that kind of have a different take on it, that are, are really looking at this saying, look, we need all the help we can get here. So if those with means can create these pods and that's going to help out, you know, certain kids, that's great. That leaves us to focus on the kids that really need, you know, more support. And, and there are many things that are starting to evolve. They're coming out that are looking to help these kids, including a story that you wrote about, um, you know, San Francisco, for example, creating what they're calling hubs around the city where where kids can go during the school day to get support and social interaction and help, you know, while they're doing distance learning. So I think a lot of people are trying to step in in creative ways to solve a situation that is just unprecedented. And, you know, instead of fighting over pods and feeling guilty, you know, we're running out of time here. There isn't time to feel guilty, you know, or, or fight. We, you know, we need to figure out how every, all children can be served in this really stressful and difficult time. Well, Jill, thank you so much for your reporting on this. It's a fascinating phenomenon. And uh, I know that you're going to keep us informed uh, in the days ahead. So thanks again. Oh, thank you. Our thanks to Jill Tucker for being with us today, to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and of course, thanks to you for listening. I'm Dominic Fracasa. We'll see you next time.